Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join Liberty University professor and conference speaker Ed Heinzen for the message, The Believer's Exciting Future. Well, good morning. Uh, I know that Mike thinks it's winter, but you all are still living in paradise. Uh, and uh, it's 30 back in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, where I came from. So it's a delight to be here. My wife and I actually lived here in Florida in the early 70s uh, on the other side on the Gulf Coast. The problem with the Gulf Coast is it's the home of the newlyweds and the nearly deads uh, and uh, a lot more action over here on the Atlantic side. So uh, I hope that you're enjoying, uh, whether you're visiting for the winter or you're here all the time, what a beautiful place uh, that God has made here and that you have the opportunity to be a part of. And uh, it's just an honor to be with you. Now, a couple of quick things. Um, some of you know that our television program is called The King is Coming, and it can be seen both on the Dish Network and on uh, uh, the uh, Discovery Network as well. So you can uh, get us on DirecTV tonight at 8 o'clock, channel 367 if you get that, or on Dish on three different uh, channels that are up there tonight at 8. Uh, you can also get us uh, on the internet, hopenow.tv, tonight at 8.30, and on the His channel that a lot of the Calvary guys are on. I'm on there five times a week, so uh, find us on one of those, uh, and uh, you can follow the broadcast weekly uh, if you choose to do that. In addition to that, as uh, Pastor Mike said, I have taught at Liberty University for over 35 years. It's the world's largest fully accredited Christian university. We have 15,000 students uh, on campus uh, and uh, over 100,000 online. You can do bachelor's, master's, and even some doctorates online, never leave the Treasure Coast. So uh, if you or your kids or grandkids are interested in that, just type in liberty.edu. The whole thing will uh, come up and you can take a look at it. Every professor is a born-again believer. Uh, we're committed to the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, a strict view on creation and on uh, end times as well, etc., and everything in between. So uh, take a look at it uh, uh, and see if God has something for you there. Now, what I want to do this morning is talk to you about the believer's exciting future, that if you know the Lord as your Savior, God has planned at least seven things for your incredible future. Now, in 50 years in the ministry, we spend our time trying to help people know how to go to heaven. And believe it or not, most people want to go. They're just not in a hurry to get there, uh, especially when they live in a nice place like this. Now, there are some places I've been that are so bad, people want to know, can we go this afternoon? Uh, whatever. Uh, there's a funny story told about a couple. They get in their 50s, and they're terribly overweight and out of shape, and uh, the wife finally says to her husband, look, if we don't go on a diet, we're not going to live much longer. So she puts him on a strict diet of poppy seed water, bananas, and some watermelon, and that's it. Uh, and sure enough, they lose weight like crazy. Five years later, they're thin and trim. The problem is they get hit by a truck and killed, uh, and they die, and they go to heaven. 
And when they get there, they look around, and it's more wonderful than they could ever imagine. There's food everywhere. You can eat to your heart's content and never gain weight. Uh, there's every beautiful thing you could ever want. And she looks at her husband and says, wow, this is wonderful. And he looks at her and says, yeah, and if it weren't for you and that darned health food, we could have been here five years ago. <laughs> so I get it. We have a responsibility to live life here on earth to the glory of God, but we also want to remind ourselves our real destination is heaven and eternity. So I want to encourage you today. Prophecy is not written to scare us. It's written to prepare us. Prepare to meet the Lord. Be ready to go whenever he calls. So let me suggest to you seven things that I think the Bible clearly promises in the future of every believer. Number one is the promise of the rapture. If you have a Bible, you might uh, find 1 Thessalonians, uh, the fourth chapter. The Apostle Paul went to the town of Thessalonica way back in the first century uh, in about 50 A.D., less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul had already been converted. He was already out serving the Lord. He'd already done one mission tour. Now he's on the second one. He goes to this town. There are no Christians there when he got there. He preached the gospel. People were saved. He planted a church. He taught him basic Bible doctrine, and then he left after only three weeks. He never went back, as far as we know. But he wrote them two letters to give them some words of encouragement. They wanted to know, Paul, what happens to the believers in our church that have died in the meantime? Did they miss the coming of Christ? And his response is, no, not at all. Uh, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse uh, 13, uh, brothers, uh, I don't want you to be ignorant about those that have fallen asleep or died. Uh, that you grieve not uh, as the rest of men, unbelievers, who have no hope. For them, death is the end. There is no future. There is no life after death. Because if we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, well, how did Jesus rise? Literally, bodily, physically, in a glorified body, yes, but a real body. He would say to the disciples, touch me and see that I'm real. Thomas, put your finger in the nail print. Be not faithless, but believing. It's a resurrected, glorified, literal body. So he says, if that's true of Jesus, that's true of us as well. Because if he rose again, we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those that fall asleep in him. In other words, all of those that have died, the bodies in the grave, in some cases, in the dust and ashes of time. But the Spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. So the Bible will say in other places, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord, well-taught people. Uh, and at death, the Spirit goes to heaven to be with God. Body's in the grave. When Jesus returns, that departed Spirit returns with Him. God will bring with Jesus those that have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, uh, we tell you that we who are still alive uh, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself 
will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, because they're at least six feet under, to catch up to everybody else. Then we which are alive and remain will be what? Caught up to meet the Lord with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. For 21 centuries, people have heard the message of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and have died. Bodies in the grave. Spirits gone to heaven. But the promise in this passage for every believer, dead or alive, is all of us will participate in the rapture. When the Lord returns, those departed spirits return with him. The dead are raised, and we that are alive and remain when he comes are also transformed and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So you might circle the words caught up in your Bible. That's the rapture promise. Now, sometimes critics of the rapture will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, the word Bible's not in the Bible either, but we believe the Bible. Uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we sang about it this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, equal attributes of deity in the triunity of the Godhead. The word Sunday is not in the Bible, but we worship on Sunday, except for those who come on Saturday night, uh, and uh, we do that on Sunday. Why? Resurrection Day. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Uh, so the early Christians met on that resurrection day to celebrate on Sunday the resurrection of Christ. All of those ideas are in the Bible, whether or not the English word is there or not. In fact, as Paul wrote this to a church in Greece, he wrote in Greek uh, in the original New Testament. And the Greek word for caught up is harpazo, zap, you're out of here, uh, gone, quickly, instantly. The idea is as though God swept down and I reached down suddenly without warning and grabbed the bottle of water, it's gone. He'll come like a thief in the night and zap, we're gone to the glory of God. That promise is for every believer who ever died in Christ and everybody who's alive when Jesus returns. Now, I gave you several things over the weekend uh, that lets us know time is moving on, clock is ticking, we're closer to the end. But I understand, if you're old, you want Jesus to come real soon because you're running out of time, I get that. If you're young, you're thinking, I'm not in a hurry for Jesus to come. I've got my whole lifetime to live. Well, I want to encourage you. It doesn't matter when he comes. You have eternity to live for Christ. You have more living ahead of you than you do behind you. You have at least the promise of the rapture for everybody who is in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ and Christ is not in you, this isn't for you. It's not going to happen. This is only for believers who will be raised and or raptured up together to meet the Lord where? In the air, in the clouds. Number two, promise to take the bride of Christ home to the Father's house. The New Testament refers to the body of believers in the church as the bride of Christ. 
It's a spiritual picture of the intimacy of our relationship with the Savior. That as members of the body of Christ, we're part of the bride of Christ as well. On the last night before Jesus went to the cross, he gathers the disciples together in the upper room. They celebrate the Passover meal in Jewish tradition. But then he takes two elements of the meal, the bread and the wine, and he says the bread is the symbol of my body that I'll be giving for you. We talked a moment ago about the communion service this week. And the cup represents the symbol of my blood, which will be shed for you. He institutes the Lord's Supper. When they finish that, Judas, the betrayer, the unbeliever, left the room. And only the 11 believing disciples were still there. And in John 14, Jesus turns to the 11 believing disciples and gives them this promise. He says, in my Father's house in heaven, there are many rooms. Now, I know the King James Version translates it, many mansions, but the idea is not several houses. It's one big, gigantic house, the Father's house, with palatial rooms for all of the believers. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there, Jesus said, to prepare a place for you, the believers. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going back to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. The imagery is that of the Jewish wedding in which a couple would be betrothed to each other that they're going to get married and then the groom would leave, go back to his father's house and add a room onto the house for the bride. When he finished the room, the father would then authorize the son, go get the bride, and he would go to get the bride. Then the ceremony would be completed and he would take the bride home to the father's house. If they were really wealthy, he might even build a separate house on the property. It's that concept that Jesus' disciples and he have in mind when he says, I'm going back to the Father's house, and I'm going to prepare places for all of you. I'm going to build a room for each one of you, and that promise is then given to every believer that you and I have in our destiny as believers a trip home to the Father's house where Jesus prepares a place uniquely for every one of us. Now think of that for a moment. If he could speak the world into existence by the power of his spoken word in six days, and it's as beautiful as it is, even under the curse of sin, think of what that place must be like. He's been working on it for nearly 2,000 years, preparing rooms for every believer. When the time comes, the Father will authorize the Son Go get the bride in the rapture and bring her home to the Father's house, that place of our eternal destiny. And then number three, we have to go up to heaven in the rapture because we're going to the judgment seat of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we shall all appear. And he's talking in the context to only believers. All the believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body here on earth. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by the grace of God and by the good work of Jesus who goes to the cross to die for our sins. And God takes our sin judicially and places it on Jesus on the cross. And the wrath of God falls on him on the cross. He dies in our place. He dies the death of a common criminal crucified between two thieves. And the judgment against our sin is laid on him in that moment. And yet at the end of the crucifixion, he stands up on the nails, pulls himself up on the spikes and shouts, it is finished, paid in full. The atonement is complete. He doesn't mean I'm finished. He means the atonement is finished. I've paid for their sins. I've done for them what they cannot do for themselves. God loved you so much that God sends his own son to the cross to die in your place, to take the punishment you and I deserve. He does it. And then he rises from the dead to give us the gift of eternal life. I didn't have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. There was no God, no Jesus, no Bible in our home. My parents were eighth grade dropouts. They were sincere, honest people living in Detroit, Michigan, but they didn't know God from a goat. Uh, they didn't know anything about God. You say, how in the world did you become a believer? A church a lot like this built a new building a few blocks from our house, advertised vacation Bible school for kids. My mother gets this flyer in the mail, reads it and says, oh, Monday to Friday, I can get him out of the house for five days. Great. <laughs> Handed me the flyer and said, go there. This was the 1950s. You don't coddle kids. Kids are tough back then. Uh, just go down the street. Make sure the light is green. Don't get hit by a car. You'll be fine. Uh, I went and I heard that Jesus loved me, that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead, that he was coming again, that I could have a home in heaven forever, and it was free I raised my hand uh, on the last day. I'm like, yes, I'm ready to believe that. I'm, I'm in. Amen. And thank God, the lady who dealt with me, Mrs. Johnson, was very thorough and careful. She wanted me to understand, kid, this is not like believing in Santa Claus. You're going to say yes to Jesus for the rest of your life. Are you ready to trust the Son of God, as your personal Savior. And while I realized not every childhood profession is the real thing, mine was. God just tugged at my heart to say, yes, I'm all in, all the way. I went home knowing I'd been saved. My poor parents didn't have a clue what was going on. My dad looked at me like, ah, oh, what? Uh, and my mother was like, that's nice, and patted me on the head. <laughs> Later, they, they came to faith and came to know the Lord, thankfully. God stepped into our lives with zero background of any kind. Now, my wife Donna is with me. She comes from a long line of Christians. I come from a long line of pagans. Uh, and God can do that sort of thing and put all of that together to his glory. But here's my point. People say to me, Ed, it's amazing. 
You've traveled all over the world. You've preached in probably 50 or 60 different countries. You've been on every continent, taught over 100,000 students in the last 30 years. This is incredible. Uh, those will be great rewards one day at the judgment seat of Christ. And I say, no, don't forget Mrs. Johnson, the lady who led me to Christ. She'll share in all of that. Because at the Bema Seat Judgment, believers receive our rewards for faithful service. Our rewards are not because we worked our way to heaven. Jesus worked his way to us. The reward is for faithfulness. It's an act of worship. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And as my gratitude and worship, I'm going to serve you with my life. So that means God keeps the record book and rewards us accordingly. Jesus said, if you're faithful in a few things, I'll make you master over many things. So that means the people that made the coffee, uh, the people that are helping on the parking lot, uh, the people that clean the room, the singers that sang, the teachers that teach, uh, those that are in the nursery with the kids, those that are teaching the children, working with the teenagers, especially them, uh, etc. They're all going to get their rewards. God keeps the record book. So God's not only going to reward Pastor Mike and the staff for their service, but all of you, because it's about everybody serving together as a body of believers. It's not like the preacher does everything. No, we all share in the ministry. Therefore, we all share in the rewards. And that Bema Seat Judgment, it's called in the Greek text, is that place where the rewards are given. This is not the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. This is a special place for believers where we receive the crowns of reward. Now, sometimes I run into overly humble people who say, well, I don't need any rewards. I'm just willing to serve. No, the rewards eventually are what we use to do what? Cast those crowns at his feet uh, in worship and appreciation. You don't want to be empty-handed on that day. You want to be there sharing in that wonderful opportunity because God loves you. Nobody loves you like Jesus loves you. Nobody else ever died for your sins. No other religious leader died for you. Every other religion says, work your way to heaven. Here's what you got to do. The message of the gospel is God has worked his way to us God incarnate stepped into a human form, a baby born in a box in Bethlehem, uh, born of a virgin, sinless son of God, comes into the human race to go to the cross and die for our sins. And God takes every terrible thing we've ever thought, said, or done, and everything else that was wrong and lays it on him. And Jesus dies as the Lamb of God bearing the sins of the world. He doesn't die as a martyr to a cause uh, or as a victim. He goes to the cross deliberately, willingly, knowing that I must suffer before I reign and rule. That's why promise number four for every believer is called the marriage of the lamb. Now, the lamb is a symbol in the New Testament for Jesus just as the lambs were sacrificed in the Old Testament, he's the sacrifice in the New Testament. That's why we don't have to do that anymore. Jesus dies in our place as the Lamb of God. So when he first launches his earthly ministry, John the Baptist pointed to him early on and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
28 times in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jesus as the lamb, symbolically. And there's a marriage in our future, according to Revelation, the 19th chapter. In fact, you might turn there. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 19. It opens with four hallelujahs of praise. And then it announces the marriage of the Lamb of Christ with the bride of Christ, the church. It's a symbolic marriage, yes, of our union with Christ, but it's part of your future destiny. So I don't care this morning if you have never been married, you're going to be married. I don't care uh, how many times you've been married, you're going to be married again. The marriage of the Lamb is in the future for every believer. Notice what it says in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding or marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, who's the bride? We are, the church. His bride has made herself ready. Now notice verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And then he explains that that white robe represents the righteousness of the believers that is a gift of God. When we're saved, we're not just forgiven of our sins. That would leave us blank. We are given the righteousness of Christ that we do not deserve, that we cannot earn, we receive from the grace of God as a gift from God himself. Uh, as a professor, if I have students and my students uh, get an F, I could say to them, okay, I forgive you. I'll erase your F. The problem is they don't have anything then. They don't have any grades. God not only erased our F, he gave us an A plus in Jesus Christ. He gives us his righteousness, and that's symbolized by this marriage. Amen. Ever ask yourself, why do brides in the Western world wear a white dress at their wedding? That symbolism comes right out of this passage, Revelation 19, because the bride of Christ is robed in white, and that's significant. That marriage is in the future of every born-again believer. The rapture, the trip to the Father's house, to the judgment seat of Christ, to the marriage of the Lamb, and then, number five, all of us will participate in the triumphal return of Christ. Uh, the Scripture says that there's a crown of reward given to those who love His appearing. Look forward to Jesus coming. Why? He's coming in the rapture to take us up to the Father's house, to the judgment seat, to the marriage, and then we return with him to earth when he comes back again. Somebody tries to tell you, oh, I think Jesus already came back. Tell him, no, he didn't, because I'm still here. Uh, I haven't gone up yet, and we haven't gone through that and come back. You say, how do you know that? Look at chapter 19 again, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He has on his head many crowns, many diadems. Uh, and uh, he has a name written that nobody knows 
but he himself, the secret unspoken name of God. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Now, who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Who wrote the gospel of John? John. How does the gospel of John begin? John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John writing Revelation wants the reader to know the rider on the horse here is Jesus. He's called the word of God. Then look at verse 14. This is for you. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in, there it is again, fine linen, white and clean. Well, where did they get that? Verse 8, at the marriage. You've got to go up in the rapture to go to the marriage to receive the white robe so when we return, we return with Jesus. Now, yes, it says in Matthew, angels will attend him at his second coming. But this passage makes it clear, so will we. This is the bride of Christ. I'd circle verse 14 of my Bible. Uh, you might want to draw an arrow pointing to it in the margin or write your name there or at least me exclamation point. This is part of your future destiny that you and I are going to ride out of heaven with Jesus at his return. He's not just coming back alone. We're coming back with him. People say, you guys believe in the rapture? You're abandoning the planet. No, we're actually coming back uh, to reign and rule with Jesus. We believe that, uh, that we return with him. You get the robe at the wedding, then you ride out of heaven with your warrior husband in triumph at his return. No longer the church persecuted, martyred, rejected, made fun of on Saturday Night Live. Now the bride of Christ is the church triumphant who rides out of heaven with her warrior husband. You say, great, we're going to come back to the Battle of Armageddon uh, and fight for Jesus? No, he doesn't need our help. He who spoke the world into existence comes back and speaks with the sword of his mouth, slays the army of the Antichrist, throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire uh, and binds Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. You and I simply come back to cheer him on. Uh, we're there to share in the victory. Hallelujah, we win. And all of God's people said, Amen. When he returns, verse 16 says, He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, the Lamb has become the King. But then as you read on, the end of that chapter, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire. Satan is bound in the abyss, chapter 20, in verse 1, uh, that uh, the angel comes down with a chain uh, and binds Satan for a thousand years, locks him in, lid sealed, cannot get out, cannot deceive the nations. Now, I have well-meaning believers who say to me, well, I think Satan is already bound by the power of the cross. Well, yes, Jesus defeated him ultimately, but he's not yet bound. Peter, long after the cross, wrote in his letter, uh, the devil wanders about like a what? Roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul, long after the cross, said, Satan 
buffeted his body, hindered his ministry, and is the prince of the power of the air even today. No, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Is I know he's at my mother-in-law's house. Uh, I don't know, whatever. But uh, no, there's sadly there's plenty of evidence Satan is still on the loose. But there will come a time when he's bound, chained down, and can't get out. And people say, "Well, do you think there's a, a literal chain? What do you think there's a literal devil? Uh, whatever. However, this has to happen. God will take care of it. And in the millennial reign, think of it. Jesus will be here in person." on the throne of David, ruling the world. Now, right now, Jesus is in the throne of heaven, ruling spiritually in our hearts. We're part of the spiritual kingdom of God. But then we return with him in a literal theocracy on earth when Jesus comes to reign and rule literally on the planet. There's finally peace on the planet because the Prince of Peace is here. Now, think of that for a moment. That means that in that time, for those thousand years, every school will be a Christian school. Every hospital will be a Christian hospital. The truth of the Word of God will permeate the planet during that time. It'll be wonderful. But I want to remind us we're not there yet. And because we're not there, that's why we need instruction in the Word of God. We need Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. And I believe... That's why we need Christian education. I've committed my life to teaching in a Christian university where every professor is a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, I've sent all three of my kids through Christian uh, grade schools, high schools, colleges, etc., because I'm a firm believer in Christian education. And I want to thank you as a church for starting a Christian school across the street. That's one of the best things that you could do. We are not yet in the millennium, and the Christian message is not permeating, unfortunately, the public school system. While there are some good teachers there, uh, unfortunately, much of the message of Jesus is restricted and is not heard. And today, the real challenge is not just in the schools. For most young people, it's on their phone. All kinds of angry atheism is jumping out there constantly saying, I don't really think the Bible's true. I don't think Jesus really claimed to be God. Oh, really? Why did he say, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, that I and the Father are one, uh, that I have the power to forgive your sins? Uh, his audience understood that. Who do you think you are? They said, only God can forgive sins. Uh, right, Jesus screams at you uh, that he's God incarnate. Uh, and yet, all over the Internet, you have all kinds of denials of that. And kids today are bombarded with things that generations past didn't even think about. The kind of issues we'd wrestle with uh, in a graduate or doctoral program. The questions have always been there. The answers have also always been there. There are great answers to those objections. The problem is 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds don't have a clue what those answers are. Without solid Christian education, they're not likely going to stumble onto it. You say, well, we, we've got a good church. We teach the truth. That's like one leg of a three-legged table, and that's great. The Christian school is another leg of that. Uh, to reinforce that five days a week, not just one day a week. And then thirdly is the Christian home 
where you and I have to live it out in our own home seven days a week. You can't just send your kids to a good church, to a good youth group and a good Christian school and live like the devil at home and expect everything to work out okay. You've got to live out your faith at home as well. They've got to see the power of Christ transforming your life. They've got to see the love of Christ on display in that home all the time. And when you put all three together, the Christian home, the Bible-believing church, and the Christian school, then you've got the three-legged stool that's not going to fall over. Uh, and uh, I believe that God is just uh, touching your hearts, and you're barely touching the hem of the garment of all that he wants to do, raising up a school to reinforce everything that goes on in your home, goes on in the church, and is going to make a difference for time and eternity. Pastor Mike, God bless you for that vision, that faith, that commitment to say we're all in. And I trust many of you will be uh, as well. But in the millennium, you'll finally have what Bernie Sanders wants, free school for everybody. Only Jesus will take care of it, and you don't have to pay uh, 55% of your taxes in order to make it happen. Uh, whatever, enough of that. Uh, we'll move on. But as wonderful as the millennium is, it's not heaven. And even when Satan is loosed at the end, he'll try to deceive people again. He's never going to change. He's never going to repent. That's why eventually the Bible ends beyond the millennial reign in the eternal city that lasts forever and ever and ever. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the marriage, the triumphal return, chapter 20, the millennial reign, and then chapters 21 and 22, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and it was prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. The eternal city, you've read those chapters where John tries to describe the indescribable and he can't quite do it. He says the streets are like gold that's transparent that you can see through. The walls are like jewels. The gates are like pearls. That'd be a big oyster. Uh, he's trying to describe the end. It's beyond imagination. It's wonderful. It's incredible. And yet it's alive. The river of life is there. The tree of life is there. There's nature there. There's life there. Uh, and uh, it sounds like the Garden of Eden. The eternal city, the new Jerusalem, is like the garden paradise regained. The tree of life is lost in Genesis 3. It's regained in Revelation 21 and 22. God is there. The Lamb Christ is there, and we will have an audience with the King on a regular basis and see His face. But more than that, the Scripture says there's no sin there. There's no death there. There's no crying there. Every tear is wiped away. We are in a final, fixed, eternal state, a glorified body, a transformed spirit, a born-again believer in the presence of God, serving him in his vast universe forever and ever and ever. We're not just floating around doing nothing. We're busy worshiping and serving the almighty king of the universe, and it is going to be beyond anything we could imagine. 
Now, I'm a big believer in Christian fellowship. I've been in all kinds of settings, Christian and non-Christian alike. I've been in every kind of culture imaginable. I've preached across most of Southern Africa. I've preached in parts of Asia. I've preached in the Middle East. I've even preached in Jerusalem in Jewish congregations uh, that were Messianic believers. Uh, I've preached in Europe. It can be cold and hard, and yet God is breaking through in places. There's nothing more wonderful than Christian fellowship. What you have right here in this church, here at Calvary Port St. Lucie, is wonderful to see the joy and the excitement in people, the wonderful fellowship that you have as believers, but as great as it is, and you can have it all over the world. Why? Because Jesus in you and Jesus in them pulls us together automatically, even if we don't understand each other's language or each other's culture or each other's food, uh, whatever. Some of you came here from New Jersey, and some of you came from Alabama. You can't even agree on breakfast. Ah, uh, whatever. A bagel, no, biscuits and gravy. Uh, they'll both kill you. Ah, uh, whatever. <laughs> I get it. But as great as that is, it's not heaven. As wonderful as this is, you could get run over on the parking lot trying to get out of here to get to your car. Uh, it's, uh, think of heaven. No jealousy. No competition, no pushing, no shoving. We are in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. That's why the Bible ends with an invitation. Because it's that wonderful. You go to Revelation 22. You go to verse 16. Jesus speaks one last time in the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony in the churches. Preach this in the churches. Well, our church never preaches on that. Well, get a better church. Uh, I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Verse 17. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, say what? Come. Prophecy is not written to scare us. It's written to prepare us. Not written to frighten us. It's written to invite us. Come to Christ. While there's hope, while there's time. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him come and take of the free gift. The wonderful thing about God is he loves you like nobody loves you. Jesus has given himself on your behalf. Nobody else ever did that. Nobody else ever took your sin and died in your place and rose from the dead to convince you that he is God Almighty. A Savior that wonderful deserves our life, our heart, our worship, our destiny. And he's given you a promise of these seven things. A gift from God to every single believer. But at some point, you and I have to do what? Come and receive it. Now, preachers can't pray you into heaven. You have to pray. You have to call. You have to believe. The invitation of the Bible is pretty basic. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. But you have to call out of faith, out of a repentant heart. I'm done trying to work my way to heaven. God has worked his way to me. I'm done with my sinful lifestyle. I'm ready to turn to Christ to forgive my sins, change my life, and give me a home in heaven forever. And these seven things are my inheritance Yes, I will receive it by faith. If somebody uh, 
died and they left you a million dollars and the bank contacted you and said, somebody's left a million dollars in your name and you never went there and got it, you never cashed the check, how dumb is that? God has given you eternity and all these promises and all he's asking you to do is by faith, cash the check, so to speak. By faith, say yes to him and put your trust and faith in your eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus and it's yours for free. I recognized a good deal. I said yes. If you've never done that, I want to urge you, do it today, right now. March the 1st, 2020, your day of decision for Christ. If you know the Lord is your Savior, I know better time than to praise and worship him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You have done for me what I could not do for myself. Hallelujah. I'm on my way to heaven, on my way to this eternal destiny in the plan of God for every believer. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Let's pray. Almighty God, King of the universe, Lord of life, our heavenly Father, we bow our heads, our hearts, our lives before you in this moment, and believers want to say, thank you. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, who gives us the opportunity of eternal life. We want to praise you and thank you and worship you today. But dear God, we also want to pray for those that have never made that specific decision before. You've never said yes to Jesus. I'm in all the way. I'm ready to trust him as my personal savior. There has to come a time when you make that specific choice to say yes to him. And if you've never done that, uh, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but you have to call. You say, Ed, how would I do that? It's not the words you say as much as it is the heart attitude, but you might pray with me if you want to do that, something like this. Almighty God, I admit that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. And I'm asking you today to save my soul forgive my sins, and change my life. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus today. As best I know how, I'm gonna trust what he's done for me for eternal life. I wanna receive him as my personal savior. Pray that in your own words. Pray it by faith. Pray it in Jesus' name. Pray it with the confidence of an amen. God will hear you, and God will answer. 